The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Our nation is really going through a lot right now, isn't it? I never imagined that any news event would be important enough uh, to capture headlines in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic. But in the last couple of weeks, the Black Lives Matter movement has dominated the news. And to be honest, uh, it's sort of caught me a bit off guard. Normally, uh, I am a bit of a news junkie. I, I, I follow news very carefully. But for the last couple of months, I've been intentionally avoiding the news uh, other than updates on this pandemic so that I can focus on other things. And I had heard about the Ahmaud Arbery uh, case, but truthfully, I didn't know a whole lot of the details surrounding it. And if I'm honest, I wasn't even aware of the police shooting that happened in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, where uh, Breonna Taylor lost her life. But then I heard about the George Floyd case and was sick to my stomach as I watched the video footage of Officer Derek Chauvin choke the life out of Floyd as he pressed his knee into Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes. And initially, as most of you know, it seemed that the uh, only consequence was that these four officers would uh, be fired because of the death of Floyd. And so protesters took to the streets demanding justice for George, George Floyd, as well as the others. And in the days that followed, the nation descended into chaos as looters in cities across America broke into shops, stealing everything within arm's reach. Buildings have been set ablaze. Properties have been vandalized. People have died. And the news and social media have been in overdrive with fingers pointing in every direction, arguing about who the real culprits are in the midst of all of this carnage. I am deeply troubled by all of the criminal acts that have been perpetrated during these riots. And I grieve for the victims of these crimes like the innocent shop owners whose lives have been completely destroyed by a single night of looting. But I'm also grieved that this lawlessness has hijacked the spotlight from what I believe to be uh, peaceful and legitimate protests from the Black Lives Matter movement. As one protester, uh, protester frustratingly uh, shared in an interview with a CNN reporter uh, during the uh, Minneapolis riots, with his voice trembling, he said to the reporter, this is what I've got to say to the people destroying things. If you're going to be opportunistic, something is wrong with you. If you cannot stand and fight the good fight and you want to be a cheater and take what we're trying to do, something is wrong with you. Because what we're trying to do is stand up for the basic rights of humanity. And we're trying to do it in a peaceful way. 
I want to be able to go into a white neighborhood and feel safe. I want to be able, when a cop is driving behind me, not to clench and be tense. I want to be able just to be free and not have to think about every step I take. At the end of the day, being born black is a crime to them, and I don't understand why, because we're all humans. And the truth is there's so many angles that we can look at everything that's transpired in these last couple weeks. But it is this racially driven injustice that so many blacks in America experience on a regular basis that I want to focus my message on today. And as I've been preparing this message, I realize I just cannot possibly say everything that I think needs to be said in a single message, and so I I realize I'm going to have to uh, probably break this down into several messages to address everything. At the heart of the message that I want to bring to you today is the biblical understanding of justice and what it has to say about the nature of the God that we worship and the calling that that God has on our lives. But before we turn to Scripture, I want to confess first about my personal hesitancy in dealing with racism and racial bias. I've been doing a lot of soul-searching the last couple weeks, trying to understand why racism just doesn't seem to elicit the same emotional response in me as other social justice issues like poverty or human trafficking. And in the course of that soul-searching, I've realized some things about myself, some reasons that go on, reasonings that go on in my head. And as I share with you that short list, I want to make a few clarifications here. Um, The list that I've come up with isn't comprehensive, first of all. And then secondly, I'm not trying to justify myself and saying that these reasons are even valid. I'm simply wanting to help you understand what I've been going through in the hopes that it might help you to process maybe how you've been experiencing everything that has been happening. Uh, The first thing that I realized is maybe something, reasoning that's going on in my head is this, that there will always be racism. There will always be racism. When Kurt Vonnegut was writing his novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, a friend asked him why he was even bothering writing an anti-war book. And he suggested that Vonnegut would probably be better off writing an anti-glacier book. His friend's point was simply, what good will it do? Uh, War will always be part of the human condition. And I think the truth is I've had that same kind of fatalistic attitude toward racism. What's the point of debating it or calling it out or protesting against it? Racism is as old as the human race. And the truth is every ethnic group defines an us and a them. And we use that distinction to justify how we exclude and abuse anyone who is not in that us category. That's just life. 
and everybody seems to do it. Racism just seems like such a huge and overwhelming problem. And it just seems so hard to get people to acknowledge their racial biases or even their outright racist sentiments that they have toward other ethnic groups. Accusations of racism only seem to fan the flames of anger and hatred. And it only seems to drive us all further apart from each other rather than really producing any solutions. The second reasoning in my head is this. It's not my story. It's not my fight. I think the conversation on race in America has largely been a binary one between blacks and whites. More recently, with the election of uh, Trump uh, into the presidential office, uh, Hispanics have been added to that mix. But for the most part, Asians have been excluded from the conversation. After all, the logic is, what grievances can Asians possibly have? We've been called the model minority, a label that has sadly been weaponized against other ethnic groups. So the argument that's charged against these other groups is, if Asians can make it in this country, why can't you? What's wrong with you? What I'm saying is that the story of racism in America never felt like it was my story. It was not my fight. And when I say this, I'm not saying that I've never experienced racism because I have. What I am saying is that based on how the conversation on race has been framed in this country, as an Asian American, I don't feel like I've been given a seat at the table that my opinion or involvement mattered at all. And so whenever this issue of race and racism has come up, I just, I've just i felt like an outsider, a bystander on the sidelines watching someone else's story take place. And the last reason is the one that's most personal to me. Talking about race makes me uncomfortable. Our family immigrated from Korea when I was four years old. I wasn't born with this name, Steve. I chose it for myself when I was five years old. My given name is Sulgi. No one could pronounce it in this country, and so it quickly was morphed into Suki. And even that distortion of my name was difficult for a lot of my classmates who struggled to pronounce it. And so from a very early age, I realized that I was different. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, and my brother and I were just about the only Asians in the entire school. This would become a recurring theme throughout my childhood living in completely white neighborhoods. I once asked my mom in first grade why I didn't go to Hebrew school like all my friends did. 
At each school, I somehow managed to get into friend groups uh, with the popular kids. And it's probably because I was pretty good at sports. But then there would always be exceptions. Some random kid would call me a racial slur, like chink. And I never backed down. I always fought back. I would routinely challenge anyone who did this to a fight after school in the playground, believe it or not. And the crazy thing is almost all the time they would show up, probably because they didn't want to be ashamed. And I never lost a single one of those fights. After beating up one kid, he falsely spread a rumor that I had beaten him because I did this flying karate kick on his face, which I hadn't. But after that rumor spread in the school, I gained this reputation. You don't mess with Suki. Our family attended an all-white church uh, during a good part of my childhood. And what was weird was that unlike at school, I found it actually a lot harder to be accepted by the white kids at church. I just never felt like I was able to break into their social circles. And there was even one kid that bullied me because I was Asian. And he would brazenly tease me and make racial comments to me right in front of the Sunday school teacher as he was teaching his lesson. And I could see in the eyes of that teacher that he looked very distressed at what he was witnessing. But the truth is, he never did anything. He never defended me. And I felt betrayed. I felt like I didn't belong in that church. And so my experience living in America has been one of general acceptance, but only up to a point. At times, I felt like there was this inner circle, this secret club that I was never invited into. And I'll be honest, I mean, I don't think this is unique to America. I suspect that an immigrant to any country will likely have similar feelings and experiences as I did and as I do. Once I got to college, everything changed and I was suddenly completely surrounded by Asians all the time. And in a way, it felt a bit like a homecoming, uh, not having grown up with a lot of other Asians. But I also discovered that it, at times, still made me feel like an outsider, as crazy as that sounds. Like I still hadn't really found my people. Uh, Strangely, one of the times in my life that I felt the most comfortable and in my skin, that I most belonged was my years living as a missionary in Kenya, living in this intimate and deep fellowship with Kenyans and Americans and Europeans and Australians and, and, and all of us just creating this wonderful and incredibly diverse international community. And there's so much more to this story. I'm just giving you a few highlights, and I'll end it there. I share all of this simply to say that race and ethnicity, uh, they're difficult and uncomfortable topics for me. And if it was totally up to me, probably I'd rather just not talk about it. I'd rather act like it doesn't exist, that it isn't an important part of my identity, 
At least for me, in other words, drawing attention to our ethnicity, just it makes me feel awkward and uncomfortable. What about for you? What has been your reaction to these recent deaths and the Black Lives Matter protests that have arisen as a result of them? I'm guessing that some of you are really struggling to even figure out how you feel about all of this. And maybe for some of us, we have some pretty strong feelings about what's going on. But our response to these events should be rooted in Scripture and not just how it makes us feel. And so let's look at Scripture and see what it has to say to us about all of this. As I said earlier, I think at the heart of the answer is the issue of justice. And I think when we think of justice, what typically comes to mind for most of us is fairness under the law. Making sure, in other words, that people get what they deserve, whether it's for good or for bad. The biblical view of justice does capture this idea of law and order, but it is so much bigger than that. In the creation account of the Bible, We're told that God had made this world to be a place of sanctuary and protection, a place where humans can flourish in every way. The garden was to be a place of dignity and love, a place where humanity is honored as the highest of all of creation because we have been made in the image of God. The creation of man and woman in the biblical account is the focal point of the entire creation story. A world lovingly created by God where humans were to enjoy his goodness. And maybe at one level you say, well, well, duh, what else would be told in a creation story? But I think it's particularly noteworthy when you compare this biblical creation account with the competing creation stories in other cultures. Because in many of these other creation stories, what you find is that the creation of human beings is more like a footnote or an afterthought in the midst of all of the drama that's being recorded about the gods fighting with one another and and whatever else is going on. And in some accounts, it's as if humans were created almost by accident, while in other accounts, We were basically made in order to be slaves of the gods. But in contrast, the Bible pictures humans as lovingly made by a good creator who created us in his image and placed us in a world where he intended us to flourish. But the Bible also tells us that this divine plan for creation was disrupted when sin entered it. Harmony and love and goodwill were replaced with jealousy and hatred and strife. Cain murders his brother Abel out of jealousy. And when God asks Cain where his brother is, Cain replies to God with disdain, Am I my brother's keeper? Cain's response captures the brokenness of our world created by sin. 
It's a world that is totally fractured as each person looks after his or her own interest at the expense of others. This is the root of all of the evils that we see in our society today. Everything from poverty to racism to child abuse to murder to rape and human trafficking. But God's desire is to restore that which has been broken in creation, to heal and mend what has been torn by sin. And more than any other word, justice captures that heart of God for his creation. Ken Witzma says this, justice is the single best word both inside and outside the Bible for capturing God's purposes for the world and humanity's calling in the world. Justice is, in fact, the broadest, most consistent word the Bible uses to speak about what ought to be. And it has been used throughout the centuries by Christians and non-Christians alike to describe vital areas of human and divine concern. To do justice means to render to each what each is due. Justice involves harmony, flourishing, and fairness, and it's based on the image of God in every person, the imago Dei that grants all people inalienable dignity and infinite worth. Witzma captures it well when he says that justice at its core is what ought to be to restore what has been damaged or destroyed by sin. There's this Hebrew word shalom, which refers to God's deepest desire for peace and for goodness and flourishing in his creation. And so justice is essentially God's mission to restore that original shalom, which was lost because of sin. You know, there's been this battle of competing narratives regarding uh, George Floyd's character. Some have portrayed him as a Bible-loving, disciple-making follower of Jesus, while others have argued that he is nothing more than a thug, a drug addict. But you know, from a Christian perspective, this whole debate misses the point Floyd deserves justice not because of the worthiness of the life that he was living when he died, but because he, like all of us, is made in the image of God. Floyd deserves justice because the God we worship is a God of justice who sees dignity in every person that he has created. You know, whenever the Bible talks about God's justice, it is regularly found in a constellation of other words like righteousness, mercy, love, service, faithfulness, truth, integrity, and law. And what I'm saying is in order for us to have a full picture of God's justice, we have to think about all of these terms as if they were in an interlocking chain. And only when we see all of these terms as they support one another do we get the full picture of God's justice. 
In other words, justice according to God's perspective is not only about fairness or rights, but God's justice is driven by his very character, by his mercy and love, seeking to restore people to wholeness, especially those who are most needy and broken, those who are most disenfranchised by society. And justice throughout the Bible, we're told, is essential to God's character. Psalm chapter 146, verse 6 to 9. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 13 to 16, it says, Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? God says something really remarkable in these verses. He says, to know me is to know my justice. Or to put it in the opposite way, you cannot know me if you do not uphold my justice. God is saying this is something so essential to my character that you cannot separate me from my heart of justice. God is talking about relationship with him. He's saying that you cannot claim to have a relationship with me if you do not fight for the just causes that I am passionate about. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 to 24, we looked at this verse just the other week. This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Of all the ways that God could have described himself, he highlights his justice as who he is. And he will do this over and over again in the pages of Scripture arguing, if you want to know me, know who I am in my essence, at the core of my character, know that I am a God of justice who fights for the ones who are most neglected and oppressed in society. You know, it's interesting when you think about this debate of social justice in the church, there will be some who will argue something like this. Well, okay, fine. 
You can talk about social justice, but make sure that you don't forget about the other things like evangelism or discipleship or even godly family raising. But I think when we talk like this, it's a failure to understand the real nature of justice. Think about it this way. It would be nonsensical to say something like this. Why are you always talking about love? You should also talk about evangelism or family life. The problem with that statement is that evangelism and family life are specific topics within the Christian life. But love is the overarching virtue that ought to drive evangelism and talk of family life, as well as everything else in the Christian life, like worship and disciple-making. And I would argue that justice is the same way. Justice is not just a special interest within the church. It is one of the essential qualities of God's character that ought to inform everything that we do as a church. Whether it is evangelism or discipleship or worship or raising our families, justice, just like love, ought to cover it all. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that directly relate to the justice of God. There are 1,000 on prayer and 700 on love. In other words, what I'm arguing is this. Once you see it in the Bible, you cannot unsee it. How absolutely overwhelming is this theme of God's justice. And that is just what we've been looking at in the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, we see all of what was spoken in the Old Testament fully realized in the person of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16 to 21, it says this, He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is how Jesus characterized his own ministry. It was a ministry of justice to care for those most oppressed in society, to set the prisoner free, to care for those most neglected among us. And we saw that Jesus not only preached that message, but he lived it out in his own life, how he avoided intentionally the establishment and those who sat on the seats of power. And he sought out those who are most marginalized 
in Jewish society, the people that everyone had forgotten, the people that were most detested and hated. And so he went to the poor. He went to the tax collectors. He went to the prostitutes. He went to the foreigners. He went to the lepers and the sick and everyone else that the world had forgotten. And it was this loud and clear message to us that God had come to the earth in flesh and he showed the heart of God by the people that he paid attention to, the ones that he cared for. He actively sought them out and highlighted them to show us the heart of God for justice. And what the Bible tells us is that we are a part of that plan of God to bring about the justice of God in our world, in our generation. Sin tears apart shalom, but God is working to restore his peace, his goodness, so that we can experience what it means to flourish under his leadership. And as Christians, we have to wrestle with what it would mean for us to seek God's justice in our world today. And I think everything that's happening right now with this Black Lives Matter movement is something that we have to reckon with as the church of Jesus Christ. In his book, Pursuing Justice, Ken Witzma writes something that really stirred my heart. He said this, Imagine a faithful Christian woman living in Stuttgart, Germany. She believes in Jesus, goes to church each week, and reads her Bible every day after breakfast. At night, before turning out the lamp, she prays for the leader of her country who is keeping Germany safe and strong. When her neighbors are low on food, she shares what little she has with a cheerful heart. And though her clothes are threadbare, she trusts that God will continue to provide for her, just as he provides for the lilies of the field. The year is 1944, and Hitler's final solution to eliminate the Jews is already well underway. Imagine a faithful Christian man living in Charleston, South Carolina in 1944. He has just turned 18 and at last he can follow his older brother's footsteps and enlist in the United States Army. Even though his brother is fighting across the Pacific from island to island, he wants to be sent to the European theater. He's sick of the newsreels showing Hitler's panzer divisions rolling through formerly peaceful towns. And he feels a gut-level disgust for the way tyranny and totalitarianism are crushing the continent under their iron boots. He kisses his mother goodbye and serenely rides the whites-only bus to the local recruiting station. How could they both, the German woman and the American soldier, be so blind to the injustices surrounding them? From our perspective, their ignorance would be laughable 
if it didn't have such painful, real-world consequences? How is it possible to be a faithful Christian while turning a blind eye to the Holocaust or to Jim Crow laws? Same war, same religion, and same basic failure to see the tatters of goodness and justice being ripped apart each day right in front of them. When was the last time we considered, seriously considered, our own moral blindness? Man. When I read these words, it just cut me to the core. It is so easy to be judgmental about other times and other places and see how utterly blind they were to the injustices that they were living under. And yet, why is it so hard for me to recognize my own blindness, my own indifference, to the things that pain the heart of God. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 58, chapter 2 to 10, for the day, for day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. You fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become the noonday. The prophet Isaiah paints for us a really disturbing picture of the people of God living in such self-absorbed worship and utterly blind to their sin. Because all they ever do is invoke God for their own petty needs day and night. And so they fast, and they pray, and they worship, and they say, where is God? How come he's not pulling through for me? Why do I feel so disappointed at God for all the ways that he is failing me? And God says to his people, Is this all there is to worshiping me? Is this the sum of your religion? And God says, you have missed 
What my heart is so burdened by is justice, justice. To care for the needy among you, to look after those who are hungry, to find out who are those that are oppressed among us and to fight on their behalf. God says, if you would do that, then you would really know me. Then I would open up my floodgates to you and pour my blessing on you. And here is the thing. I think in America today, we have such an individualized, privatized faith. Everything is so limited to just what is God doing in my life to help me out and get me to the next steps in his plan for me that I think somehow we have missed the bigger picture of God's kingdom, a kingdom of justice where the leadership of God ought to lead to the freedom of the oppressed and hope for the ones who are most marginalized and forgotten in our society and to understand that the church is a central part of that plan of God. It seems like all we are trying to do is to save souls for heaven to just get them to believe a certain set of facts so that they could have assurance of where they will go when they die. And we have lost the much bigger picture of the kingdom of God, of this transformation of the gospel into societies largely centered on justice. We are so individualized and privatized in our faith, but justice is inherently social and societal, not personal and individual. N.T. Wright, in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, writes this, the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Israel's Messiah, and with the powerful gift of the Spirit, God's world has been renewed. The kingdom has been inaugurated. And those who believe in Jesus and who are indwelt by the Spirit are now formed as a royal priesthood who in their worship and their witness are carrying forward the work of the kingdom. The decisive victory against the powers has already been won. The revolution has already begun. I think as evangelicals, we rarely think about systems of injustice and structural sins I think the second we start using that kind of terminology, we start fearing that we're becoming liberal. But I think the problem is that as conservative Christians, we have failed to see the societal dimension of the transformation that was intended by the kingdom of God coming into the kingdoms of this world and the vital role that we play as disciples of Jesus in bringing about that societal transformation. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 4 to 5 says, Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. This is God's invitation to every one of us to understand the implications of God's justice in our world today. 
and to get on our knees and pray about what it might mean for us to take a part in the revolution that Jesus started when he died on the cross. Now, there's just so much more to be said on this, and probably this message is raising more questions than it is even answering for you. But I think this is a starting point. This is a starting point in a conversation that we need to have as a church for what it means for us to represent the justice of God in our day. And I am asking you specifically to wrestle with that as it applies to this Black Lives Matter movement. I think it's an indictment against us when it's been said that those who live in those places of luxury and power don't feel a very strong need for justice. And I think that's true of most of us. I don't think justice is a theme that we even really think about much in our lives. But those who are oppressed, those who are marginalized, those who are in suffering, think about it all the time. Let me just offer you three very quick ways that we can respond. I think the first one that I've seen other pastors uh, post and write about is, is very valid, and it is lament, lament. The Bible's response to suffering is lament. Because I think when we begin with lament, it helps us to unite with those who are suffering. It helps us to look more deeply inside and let that message of the suffering that is going on right now in the black community really sink into our soul. I say we need to lament also because I think Part of lament is coming before God and asking him to test us and to search our hearts. We saw that in the laments of David, didn't we? When he asked God, test me, test me, and expose the things that need exposure in my heart. I think this. I think right now, because of what's happening in America, there is this pressure to get on this Boss, there is this pressure to be woke and to be on the right side of this. But I think we have to first begin with just simply asking ourselves, do black lives actually matter to me? And if not, why not? What are the struggles in my heart to embrace any of this, to want to be a part of it. And so I think we need to begin with lament that invites us into the presence of God. The second I want to say is this, we have to learn, we have to learn. I think there is this really um, vitriolic debate going on um, does the black community really deserve this much attention and focus? Is it really as bad for them as they say it is? Or are they just blowing things way out of proportion? And I think you've got to wrestle with that. 
And you got to deal with that. And one of the best ways is to learn, to understand what the black experience in America is, even now in the 21st century. This past week, I actually called a couple of my black friends and talked with them to try to understand things. And, you know, one of them um, I've known for years, decades, but I realized I had never talked about his black experience with him. And so when I called him, I said, I just want to hear from you how you're processing everything and what you're feeling through all of this. And he began to share with me even some of his experiences, running away as he was chased from cops and things that I had never known he had gone through in his life. You know, it's hard to love somebody that you really don't know. And I think that is part of the problem for many of us. Um, I was, I've just been immersing myself because I will be the first one to admit there is so much that I do not know. And I've been just trying to read about what the black experience in America is like. And it's been heartbreaking to read some of the testimonies. Just things that I could have never imagined black people deal with. This lady talking about how her um, like young black men who are wealthy kind of advise each other, you know. Uh, if you're driving a luxury sedan, uh, what you ought to do is you ought to put a stuffed animal in the back windshield. Because if a cop ever pulls you over, probably the first thing he's going to think is you stole that car. And rather than risking your life, maybe, just maybe, that stuffed animal may make him think twice that you're a family man. We have to um, learn from one another and break down these walls that separate us and be able to empathize with each other. In fact, I would even invite you, if you would like to, to send any resources that you think would be helpful in this matter. And would you email it to me? And I would be more than glad this week to sort of compile a list of videos and interviews and articles and websites and books that you think are helpful to really try to understand what's happening with racism in America and particularly what's going on here uh, for the black community. And then I will send it out to the church if you will forward that to me. And the last thing, and I'll end with this, is simply this. After you lament, after you learn, you have to take action. You have to take action. I think all of these passages about justice in the Bible imply not just head knowledge, but action, action. Justice is inherently action-oriented. And so what would it mean for you to get involved, to advocate for the cause of this black movement? Maybe it might even mean attending a march and letting those who are in power hear a loud and clear voice that something has to change, that the status quo is unacceptable. I don't think there are any easy answers here to solving the problems that are before us. But what are some steps that we can take to try to move the conversation forward? 
and to let God's justice take action. Maybe it might be to go to those places that that have been rioted and help clean up the graffiti and clean up the stores that have been raided to help these store owners who've been devastated by these riots. I don't know. But I want to invite you into the journey that God has set me on right now to do a lot of soul searching in my own heart and asking God, what does it mean that you are a God of justice? And what is it that you desire of me to represent your heart in my world this day? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in prayer and ask you for your help in all of this. We don't know what to do. And in this cacophony of voices, there's just so much confusion as each side argues for what they see as right. But as your people lead us by the truth of your word and by your Holy Spirit that can show us your heart, And as we come under your leadership as a God of justice, may we be your just people to bring about the justice that you desire for your creation through the works of your saints. So show us what that means for each one of us individually, what you would like of us as we seek to follow you and the example that Christ has set for us. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Now receive the benediction. May the God who loves all people, regardless of the color of their skin, open your ears to hear the cry for justice of the black community in America today. May he grant you the courage to stand alongside them in support and solidarity, to advocate for their cause, and help them in their time of need. May the God who feeds the hungry and cares for widows and orphans use you as his instrument of justice in our generation. Amen.